having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to, his, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. Today I want to begin with a question. Um, what is Christianity's end game? What do you think is Christianity's bottom line, end game? Uh, for the Christian, this is important to know because I hope you know, as a Christ follower, where is all this headed? And for any friends who are still investigating Jesus Christ, who haven't crossed that line of faith, perhaps you're, you're not a Christian, I hope that you know what Christianity's end game is, what the big picture is, where, what the goal is. Now, for some of us, both Christian and non-Christian, we might think that Christianity's end game, the goal, the bottom line is piety, uh, to be holy, to become a good person, a better person. Uh, and that's partly true, but it's not everything. And there's a slippery slope here. If this is the only end game, the slippery slope is we can become very judgmental people, even angry people, because so many people are... Uh, not meeting our standards, and so forth. Some of us, we believe we've been set free by grace, and grace allows us a, a Christian liberty, and so we can enjoy, and so perhaps the end game is happiness. And certainly, uh, there is some of this. There is some of this, and, and God's definition of happiness, and He certainly is for our happiness, but He has His way. But this can't be the sole end game of Christianity as well, because this will also lead down a slippery slope. Perhaps for some of us, you love Christianity, you love the Bible, you love the Bible apps, you love uh, the devotionals, you love the little uh, YouTube clips and so forth, because it helps you find inner peace. Hearing that nice quote or that thought, that reflection, it just gives you perspective to know that you're loved by the Father unconditionally. It boosts your self-esteem and so forth, and, and so it gives you some kind of inner peace. Uh, and especially if your chaos or your circumstances are chaotic, you, you look to Christianity to calm you down. And this is true, but it's only a part. It's not the entire end game. Now. I love Martin Luther uh, and one of the fathers of the Reformation and, and one of his famous hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this is the last uh, verse. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. Wow. What a call to, to give up this life and those who are close to us, this mortal life also. And so Martin Luther is getting at another 
aspect to the end game of Christianity here, that there's life beyond this life. The body they may kill. Even Jesus, he's just quoting Jesus there. Don't fear those who can uh, destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul, but fear the one who can destroy the soul. God's truth abides still. Why? His kingdom is forever. And so here's a final and I would say even overarchingly most important end game to Christianity. We're looking forward to a kingdom, a government, a country, a rule. And, and of course, a kingdom, by definition, has a king. And so that's why I've entitled today's sermon, The Church's King. We need to get to know our king more intimately. We need to know and follow and submit to and, and be loved by and, and to experience the rule and reign of our king. And as we get to know Jesus Christ, and Christ is just a synonym for king. That's the, the Greek, beautiful Greek word for the anointed king, which is a synonym for the Jewish word, the Messiah. The more we get to know our king, the church's king, then we can understand more the kingdom and how we're meant to be living out our Christian life on this earth until God calls us home. And so my hope and prayer I want to try to unpack, uh, unpack four realities of Jesus being our King, and, and my hope and prayer for all of us, myself included, that, that something would be stirring in our hearts because of today's passage that would want to cry out by faith, Lord Jesus, you are my King. I would just say that again. It's so elementary, but so fundamental to the robust and real Christian life, to declare again and again, Jesus, you are my King. So I just want to ask simply for the rest of our time together, who is our king? What is he like? Who is our king? And the first idea that I want you to see with me is that Jesus is the raised to rule. He was raised. He was resurrected to rule king. The raised to rule king. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with this kind of funny story that goes around Christian circles and and there's this man, his, flood, his town is flooded. Uh, he's standing on his roof. He wants to be saved. So he cries out to God, God, save me. And so a rowboat comes by, a man rowing boat. Hey, get in the boat. It's like, no, God, I'm, I'm praying that God will save me. It's okay. And so, okay. And he goes off. And then a motorboat comes by, a bit more powerful, stronger, more secure. Hey, get into the boat. I'll take you to safety. It's like, no, no, God will save me. And then finally, a helicopter comes. The waters are rising. You got to get in, you know, climb up the ladder now. It's like, no, no, God will save me. It's okay. And of course, the helicopter leaves. The waters rise. He drowns. He dies. He stands before God. It's like, God, why didn't you save me? What did you want? What did you expect? I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, a helicopter. The point of this silly story is, is that oftentimes, we don't recognize God for who He says He is and how He wants to relate to us. We don't recognize God's saving grace in our lives, His way of salvation, and that's why there are so many uh, ways, quote-unquote, ways to God out there, world religions and so forth. And we make up our own notions of God. That's very prevalent in our culture, especially today. It's been there through history, but all the more that we define God according to our convenience, to our desires, our whim. But what I want you to clearly 
definitively how to see God here as we now get into the text. Picking up verse 19, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, in Jesus Christ, and who is our King, who is our Christ, when He, the Father, raised Him, Jesus, from the dead. Christianity, the the Christ follower, rejoices, uh, just goes as deep as possible, anchors down as deeply as possible, just hooks in as deeply as possible, as securely possible to this specific aspect of Jesus, the Christ, that He has been raised. He has been raised. But this Jesus, while others, even Jesus Himself, raised others from the dead, they died again. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus died again and had to be once and for all truly glorified and resurrected before the Lord. But the Lord Jesus, the kind of king he is, is that he is the first to rise in the power of an endless and eternal life. A life that has once and for all defeated all sin and death. And so an aspect here that Paul puts part and parcel with Jesus being raised from the dead. We could ask, why did the Father raise Jesus from the dead? And we see it here, and why? So that the Father could seat him at his right hand. And through the Bible, this is a very beautiful image of one with highest authority now bringing another to that same authority, giving them utmost highest honor, respect, authority, power. And so we see even the location in the heavenly places. Why was Jesus raised? He was raised to rule. He was raised to rule. And so we need to ask, Jesus rules over what? What was he raised to rule over? And something again, this just simple image of a little plant or tree or flower with roots and fruits. This is is such a, a helpful imagery to understand the Christian life. And then we can understand what Jesus rules over with this little image. And what Jesus rules over is both the roots and fruits of what keep us apart from God. What keep us apart from God and, and what would have us on a highway to eternal damnation. What are the roots? What Jesus has done is he has defeated the root which is sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled, sin covered uh, all of creation, all of existence, our relationships, our own hearts. Now everyone after them is born into sin, and that's the root. Why is there disease? Why is there death? Why is there strife? Why did some of us even argue on the way to church here this morning? Why is it difficult to work? Why is it Why? We go on and on and on, and the root is sin. And these roots produce ugly fruits, symptoms. And one of the the, the greatest symptoms, the most ugly fruit, is death. Because death kind of tops it all. You could maybe cure all diseases, but still there is death. You could have perfect, wonderful, warm, loving relationships, but there is still death. And so I love how John Stott uh, reflects on this passage. And he says, For if there are two powers which man cannot control, 
but which hold him in bondage, they are death and evil. And evil there is John Stott's just way of saying sin. Man is mortal. He cannot avoid death. Man is fallen. He cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both and therefore can rescue us from both. We may succeed in postponing death by being healthier, eating the right foods, exercising, and so forth, but we cannot escape it. And after death, nothing can stop the process of decay and decomposition. And so much so that God, what He does in raising Jesus, He fulfills a promise made in the Psalms that He won't let His chosen King see decay. And He raised Him before that could happen. And so let let me try to bring it down to earth and to our everyday lives. The, The Christian life then is the lifelong journey If you don't have this perspective yet, or you need to be reminded, be reminded today that the Christian life, don't don't just get caught up in the tyranny of the now and all the, the weeds of the details and stresses of the day and demands and deadlines and so forth. No, take a step back and breathe in and have perspective again, Christian eternal perspective, that the Christian life is the lifelong journey of letting Christ rule increasingly, first starting with each of us in our hearts dealing with the root of sin in our hearts. And from there, dealing with, and hopefully as as we continually be progressively transformed by the Spirit and by grace and just resting in Christ's gospel and His love for us, that we bear more and more good fruit as well. More and more fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, and on and on. And so that we would let Christ rule increasingly, beginning in our hearts, and then our homes because that's the most immediate circle of contact and influence that we have. And then our churches, our Christian family, and then our work, our rest. And through it all, through it all, the lifelong journey of letting Christ rule through our witness. As we continue to share Christ and word and deed in whatever sphere of influence that God has you. But next, I want you to see with me, as we ask, who is our king? Jesus is the current and final king. Now, at least for me, I don't know about you, but what's natural and sort of instinctive, just left to my own devices, uh, to think of Jesus as that future king. That future king. That's true, but he is also king now. He's also king now. And and Paul says this very black and white. We'll get back to this far above in a second. But So picking up in verse 21, far above Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus the King, who was raised to rule, seated at the right hand. And so He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, meaning He reigns currently now. He reigns currently now. I know when we look out, just if, if you're just sort of looking on the surface, it may seem the skeptic has, has argument. Where is Christ reigning? I don't see him. I don't see him have an office. I don't see him have some kind of government parliament building. I don't see uh, there's so much evil and suffering in the world. And, and you can go on and on. You, yeah, sure, if you, if you want to go down that skeptical route, you can argue. 
till you're blue in the face. But the truth is, despite what we see, the biblical black and white truth is, He is reigning now, currently. And His reign is meant to be played out in some concrete shape and form through the church. But also, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, I I want you to see that and maybe one reason why we don't on the surface uh, at first glance in sort of obvious ways to the skeptic, uh, skeptic's eyes see Christ ruling is because He is far above. Now this is both, um, I think, a location and sort of a, a meaning, uh, sort of an existential type of rule. And so Christ is far above, not just above, but far above because we saw that he's seated in the heavenlies. And he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, notice all. This all-inclusive word, all. And so this begins, I think, of first the elementary school bully in the playground and trying to dominate with their power and their authority and their rule in the playground at recess and their dominion. We think of husbands and wives as parents, and, but also uh, in their own relationship, their marriage relationship, and where there's tension between authority and power and who will have dominion, who is right. Then, obviously, naturally, we can think of our bosses, our managers, our directors, our CEOs, and, and on and on. And then, of course, we can think of uh, at more national levels and global levels, our political leaders, all these rulers of Every rule and authority, and of course, even beyond that, Paul will get to it. And the Bible is clear that there is a spiritual world. There is a spiritual battle. The kingdom of God, and whose king is Jesus Christ, and Satan and his dark kingdom, his principalities, his demons, where they rebelled and they're at battle. And of course, Christ is already, he is one, we know already, he is victor but there's that rule and authority going on as well. And certainly history is the stage for that cosmic spiritual battle. And so when Paul says far above, I want to try to help us appreciate it in this way. Um, Toronto, we boast the CN Tower. And at one point, it was the tallest tower in the world. Uh, And we're world famous for it. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And it makes Toronto stand out globally. Uh, I was in Halifax for uh, my denomination's uh, Presbytery meeting this past Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And as, as I was flying back yesterday, I uh, had a window seat and I glanced at as we were approaching Toronto and I always play a little game with myself. Let's see if I can recognize you know, certain landmarks and even see where my neighborhood is. And I looked out and I saw in the distance, like, is that the CN Tower? And you can barely see it, I'm sure, from where you are, but the arrow is pointing at it, and, and it looked barely like a little just frayed thread. And from where I was sitting, I could just snap it with my pinky nail. And so for however many thousands of feet I was above, that mighty tower was nothing. And when Paul says that Jesus Christ, he 
was raised to rule and he's seated at the right hand of the Father far above. He has every right to mockingly laugh at all the mightiest rulers and warriors and princes and, and, and kings and queens throughout history. They're even infinitesimally smaller than this CN Tower as we're looking at it from this perspective. And so Jesus Christ in his, the, the, the actual power that he wields that is far above, not just above, but far above. Perhaps that's why we, we don't, with the skeptical mind, see obviously Jesus reigning and ruling. Because that's how much we don't understand he actually is truly in control of history. That he is that far above. I love how Paul uh, explains a similar idea to the Corinthians. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. And he says in the 15th chapter of that letter, then comes the end. Paul explains clearly there will be an end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And he's even more direct here, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's the end. Remember, we're thinking about who is our king? Jesus, who is the current and final king. And now, Paul, I want to just show you from Scripture that there's this clear picture of how Christ will, will finally just establish with command his final and eternal rule. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, which is just borrowing from uh, a certain prophecy in Psalm, Psalm 110 and others. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Remember the roots and fruits? That's why Jesus was raised because he defeated death that way. God the Father validates him, vindicates him, and defeats the greatest, ugliest symptom, the greatest fruit of the root of sin. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so again, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so, let's, let's ask again. So Jesus currently rules over what? And this is where, going back to how we started off thinking about what's the end game of Christianity. Jesus does care about our everyday piety. And his rule, his character, his likeness is meant to continue to progressively be matured in and through us. Don't forget that. Look, even I have my, my slip-ups, my days where I, I, I need to have my mouth washed with soap or my attitude. Oh, the, the drives to school still are the biggest test for me when I'm driving my daughter to school. And she actually prays for me <laughs> when we start off, Lord, please help my dad to not call people stupid. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, let us not forget that this matters. That this is part of the Christian life. This is a part of Christ's rule in and through us. But also, knowing that God, He is a loving Father who wants us to experience 
a certain, I'll just call it, a, just in his eyes, a pleasing measure of happiness and joy in this life according to his definitions and his ways. But nevertheless, that, that he does reign over that. And, and we're not, as Christians, a part of the Christian life is not just to go off the deep end and just to think that grace covers everything and we're free to do whatever we want with license. But Christ, Christ certainly is meant to rule over our perspective. When do we get stressed out? When do we become really short-tempered? It's when we lose perspective. When, when all the details become mountains in front of us. All those small things become mountains. But at least for myself, when I'm able to actually step back meditate on Scripture and His promises and gain eternal perspective again and remember that Jesus Christ is far above everything that's going on. And I just trust myself into His loving hands again. I can actually start to breathe. My heart rate calms down. Anxiety slowly dissipates. And so Jesus is to rule over our perspective as well. Now this last one, it's uber-sensitive during these times. And this is partly... I'm, I'm a bit comforted that it's not just the church, but it's all of society and our, that, that we're polarized and, and there are tensions, but certainly within the church all the more because this is the greatest reality and, and community that needs to be protected and is meant to, to have a role and purpose on this earth. Christ is is also meant to rule over our earthly politics. And what I mean by that is, on one hand, the Christian, part of the Christian life, because we're expecting a kingdom, we're meant to think slowly, carefully, deeply, biblically, prayerfully about how God's reign, His perfect politic, His perfect kingship, and government, how it's meant to start to play out on earth. Beginning in our own hearts again, our homes, our churches, and then as much influence as we can exert in a gentle uh, and loving manner at our workplaces, in our cities. And we need to think about how we relate to our earthly governments as first a citizen and subject to Jesus Christ, the King. Now I say that again very, uh, I want to say that tempered and carefully because that conversation can become intense in both directions very quickly. But nevertheless, to put it out there, and, and I think some of us, uh, even myself in the past, say, four years, I feel like I, I've been thinking about this more. And it's not always on the radar for the Christian. But we need this just fully uh, holistic, fully orbed Christianity. It's not just about being a good person and maturing that way. It's not just about all these other individual things. Now through it all, what certainly comforts me and through just the, the battles of life where I find myself resting, and I hope you can too, is that Jesus is the husband king. Jesus is, part of me want to say that the romantic king, but, you know, could be uh, maybe not, the, the, might be misinterpreted. But Jesus for sure is the husband king, 
the, the loving husband king. Where do we see that? Paul gives us a little preview to his epic chapter 5, which we'll get to, which is about Christ and the church and marriage, husband and wife. But here he gives us a little preview. And he put, the Father put all things under his feet and gave Jesus as head to the church. That's the main sentence. He gave Jesus as head, as husband to his bride. To Christ's beloved passion, he gave him as husband to the church. Now, this over all things, meaning, wow, if, if you could be the first lady, if you could be uh, the, the first man, you know, and whatnot, like meaning just married to this person of great stature. What an honor for us as Christians to be known as our identity, metaphorically, is the bride of Christ. Christ's beloved pursuit and passion, the one he was willing to lay down his life for out of the purest, truest, just in the best sense, a raging love for his beloved. And we see this picture here, a preview of the marriage. The Father gives Jesus as husband, as head over all things to the church. And so the simple point, rest in that. How does Jesus reign in our hearts? He's our husband king. And we're meant to rest in that every day, your belovedness. Oh, so many of our, our struggles, our insecurities, our, 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 our stresses would, would dissipate a lot more quickly if we would just continually rest in our belovedness. Rest in our belovedness and an overflowing goodness to one another if we would just all rest in our belovedness. Now the good news is you don't have to muster this up because Jesus is the empowering us for holiness. Empowering us for holiness, King. Let's go back to where we started with the passage, verse 18. Um, Paul, just to... Take it. And, and when I see him in the new creation, I'm sure there'll be a long lineup. And when I finally get to say hi to him, I'm going to uh, poke some fun at him. Uh, he, at least in English, he's not a good English writer. Like he has major run on sentences. And even today's passage is just like whatever, three, four verses, part of a whole paragraph. And that whole paragraph is one long sentence. And so that's why sometimes you just have to slowly comb through to understand what he's saying. And so coming back to verse 18, uh, this is not even the beginning of the sentence and the thought, but picks up, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? What, what do we need to see? That you may know, and here's the first thing, what is the hope? And, so that you may know, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? Now notice, toward us. What is the amazing, so what, what God wants us to see, to understand, to get with the eyes of our hearts, to know, to experience, is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us. And this power, the verses that all follow, we unpack that, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And so the specific power that 
Paul is referring to is God the Father's power to raise Jesus from the dead. The resurrection power. That's the immeasurable power. And it's not just exercised and executed by God. It's not just discharged by God into thin air. No, it's toward us. Toward us. The very energy, the very power, I don't know how God did it, but that very power that God the Father used to raise Jesus from the dead is to you and me, and it's available to you and me each and every day if we would rest there, if we would ask for it, if we would return to it. Now, of course, it's not magical. It's not a switch. And and God, how He relates to us, it's like any real human relationship. As much love as you might have for a person, you have to keep loving that other person and, and work on that relationship and have things worked out and talked through and, and your own character worked through and matured and let go of certain things, forgive and encourage. And it, it, it's a real rigorous process, but nevertheless, it's there. It's there. If your starting point every day, every moment is I am loved and I have new life. I'm a new creation in Christ. It's hard to, to, to really fall away far from that point if you're really starting from that point. Now, uh, I'm not going to get into it um, completely, but I, can, I could argue, and, and I believe it's true, that really, when, when Paul says here, the immeasurable greatness. Paul is asserting that this is one of God's most glorious displays of His power that God has ever demonstrated. You might think that, I love how Bill McDonald, a wonderful brethren commentator puts it, you might think that God displayed the height of His power at creation. Right? Uh, you, you might think that God displayed the height of His power, and just think of any other place in Scripture. But no, Paul says, what is the immeasurable greatness? You can make strong argument that where God demonstrated just uh, the, the, the height of His power was in raising Jesus from the dead, and this same resurrection power is toward us. So even looking at Ephesians 1, at the beginning, Paul looks back to the past and there's this beautiful explanation that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's the past. And this can represent your past. Whether it's the, your, whatever you think of when you think of your past and then at some point when you believed in Christ. And Paul also looks forward. We just read a bit earlier the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance? So the past and then the eternal future. And in between, what Paul is saying and wants us to understand and who Christ our King is, He is the empowering us to holiness King. The same resurrection power is there for us for the in-between. On the screen, it looks short, but this is... This represents our whole life, our entire life. God's power to get you there. To get you to being welcome to His new creation. Think of it this way. In Pickering, we have a nuclear reactor. 
And uh, I looked it up this week. This reactor at one time, it outputs 3.1 billion watts of energy, of electricity. I brought here with me a 100-watt light bulb. And so this is, that, that can, just in one output, one discharge of energy, it can uh, light up 3.1 million of these. What I'm trying to get you to just kind of, kind of see with me to sense is all the power. This is a potentially city-destroying power here if this reactor melts. A city-destroying reactor. All that power going just into this tiny little bulb. And that's, I, I want you to, to imagine that's kind of what it's like. This analogy doesn't do it justice, but God's resurrection, the immeasurable greatness of his resurrection power just flowing out from him through his spirit into you. And that you could be that light for Christ. You see, you and I, we're not meant to, if we only think that Christianity's endgame is piety, then the slippery slope is we try to muster up that willpower from ourselves and then we even become angry Christians and judgmental and, and, and think that why aren't others like this and so forth and then we burn out and then just this vicious cycle. But no, if we understand just the wholeness of Christianity and, and resting in God's kingdom that there's this grander story that we're part of and we're living into and that Jesus is this king who gave up himself for us. The fact that he's raised to rule. He was resurrected. Why was he resurrected? Because he took our place. If we rest in that each and every day and more and more get better at each and every moment, just the, the, that nice hum in the back of our minds and in the depths of our souls, that nice hum. And that we find ourselves just praying, Lord Jesus, you are my King. I hope that becomes the ever-increasing reality in all of our lives.